Our scripture reading is Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. So Revelation 20, beginning at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they are marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and, sur- and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the, angel, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth, and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we finish our study of Revelation 20, and we consider two main subjects, what happens when the thousand thousand years are ended, which is covered in verses 7 through 10, and then the final judgment, which is depicted in verses 11 through 15. And so verse 7 says, and when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, as usual in the book of Revelation, this is highly symbolic. We are not to expect all the saints gathered in one place, surrounded by a massive enemy army, but we are to expect something that corresponds to this. The restraint that Satan is under at the present time is going to be removed And so he will be free to deceive the nations in a way that he has not been free during the thousand years that Revelation 20 speaks about. And he will then organize, when he is set free, organize war against the people of God. And by the way, the names Gog and Magog, 
They come from Ezekiel 38. They're a way of referring to the nations in opposition to God and his people. And that connects that opposition to the opposition that has always been, uh, or it connects this opposition that we're talking about in Revelation 20 to the opposition that has always been uh, against God and his people. Like so much else in the biblical teaching about salvation and judgment, there are these themes that run through history and they come to a climax at the end of the age. So we're not to look for any specific nation as the fulfillment of these names, but see them as pointing to the enemies of God and his people in this period when God will remove the restraints that have bound Satan during the thousand years, which as we have seen, that thousand years is symbolic of the whole period between the time when Christ was on earth and this time just before the end of the world. So just before the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a short period when Satan will be released from his prison and he will be able to deceive the nations. He will organize the nations to do battle against the saints. What is described in these verses is consistent with other passages of Scripture that speak of a time of great tribulation for the church just before the end of the world. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew twenty four twenty one. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor and never will be. Paul teaches the same thing in Second in Thessalonians 2. And in that chapter, Paul is telling his readers not to believe those who are teaching that Christ had already come, that he had already returned. And then in verse 3, he writes, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to be God's. So the Bible teaches that there will be an increase in satanic activity and influence during the short period just before the return of Christ. During that period, there will be a level of persecution against the church that will be greater than any of the persecution that the church had ex- has experienced before that time. In Matthew twenty four twenty two, Jesus says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Anthony Hukama, in his book called The Bible in the Future, writes about this. He says, It would appear to be <clears throat> it would appear that there will be a final climactic tribulation just before Christ returns. This tribulation will not be basically different from earlier tribulations, which God's people have had to suffer, but it will be an intensified form of those earlier tribulations. So that's what verses 7 through 9a are teaching, a final great tribulation, persecution before the end of the world as a result of God releasing Satan from the restrictions that he is under at the present time, those restrictions which make possible 
the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in this present time. There's another wrinkle to this. Persecution is not the only possible way that these verses will be fulfilled. Notice that our text in Revelation actually says that Satan will be released from prison and that he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. He will gather them for battle. So this is about the nations being more and more deceived by Satan, and it's about Satan and his followers making war on the saints. Certainly that happens through persecution, but that's not the only way. Satan blinds the nations through deception, and that deception itself is part of the way that Satan makes war against the people of God. Again, we turn to uh, Matthew 24 to give us a little more detail about what things will be like when Satan is released from his prison just before the return of Christ. Listen to what Jesus says about this time period in Matthew 24, 23 through 25. Jesus says, "If <clears throat> Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is a Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So the scriptures also describe a time when Satan is released from prison, that time as a time of deception and false teachers who will lead many astray. It's not surprising when we think of the fact that Satan will be released to deceive the nations, but Jesus' warning alerts us to the fact that those deception or that deception will attempt to lead even the elect astray. The point is that this time of great deception will be a danger, a great danger for the visible church. The elect will be kept from this false teaching, but the non-elect in the church will fall away during this time. Now, what does that mean for us? It doesn't appear that we are yet in this time of Revelation 27 through 9a, because the gospel is still being blessed around the world. There are places in the world where the church is growing very rapidly, and that suggests, suggests that Satan is still bound in that sense that he's not able to deceive the nation, at least to the extent of keeping the gospel from rescuing people from his kingdom. At the same time, the nature of biblical prophecy uh, makes it impossible to be precise about the exact timing of their fulfillment. However, it does seem that we are at least seeing an increase in persecution all around the world, and we do seem to be moving toward greater persecution in our society and the, the growth and the extent of the blindness of so many people in our society when it comes to, to matters of right and wrong suggests that we may be coming closer at least to this situation described in our texts and other texts that I have mentioned. But regardless of exactly where we are on God's timeline, it's clear enough 
that we are in a time of intense satanic deception. It's clear enough from what's going on around us in the world and the ungodly things that people believe and do and the increased aggression against the church, especially when it comes to the biblical teaching about gender and sexuality and marriage. And we need to be aware of our own weakness and vulnerability. Just think about Jesus' warning to the false prophets that they are seeking to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There's incredible pressure on us to conform to the teaching of the world. And the fact that so many Christians, uh, uh, professing Christians, succumb to the satanic deception that is bombarding us just, just underscores how incredibly dangerous it is. And all this just puts an extra urgency on us being serious about our relationship with God. Our relationship with God, of course, is always a matter of great urgency. It's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. It's always urgent. But the kind of pressure that we are under at the current time just highlights that. And so does the the, the likelihood of that pressure increasing even further in the future. Peter puts it like this in First Peter in his first epistle, uh, 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So wherever we are relative to the time when Satan will be released from his prison, the reminder that that time is coming when he will be allowed to be even more active than he is now, impresses upon us how important it is for us to be sober rather than careless and firm in our faith rather than weak and cavalier about our faith. Or think of what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So there's a time coming, just before the end, when Satan will be released from prison. He will come out to deceive the nations. He will gather them for battle. And wherever we are relative to that time, it is a call to each of us to be very diligent about resisting temptations and nurturing our faith through prayer and through fellowship with God and through our involvement in the life of the church. But notice how this all ends. Satan is released from prison. The nations are deceived, gathered against the saints. And then we read, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the Bible describes the final victory over Satan and his followers in a number of different ways. And here it is in terms of fire from heaven. The enemies being consumed and the devil thrown into the lake of fire. The beast and the prophet are already there. The destruction... Their destruction had already been mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation. And as we have seen before, the book of Revelation is not 
overly concerned with chronology, except in the very broadest terms. What matters here is that all the enemies of Christ and his people end up in the lake of fire. And clearly this is meant to be an encouragement for the people of God. Satan is real. He is powerful. As we get close to the end, God is going to give him more freedom to deceive the nations and to make war on his people. But we know how it's going to end. We know that Jesus has already won the victory and that he will bring that victory to his conclusion by fire from heaven, which will consume his and our enemies, and they're all going to end up in the lake of fire. But you may wonder why why God is going to release Satan from his prison and give him this time to deceive the nations and to make war on the saints in even a greater way. Well, this is another version of the question of why God allowed Satan to tempt Adam and Eve in the first place. And the same question is is asked by asking why God's plan includes such a long and difficult road for his people. The same question is why God's plan includes so much persecution and so much temptation and hardship for his people. Well, one thing we can say, just on the basis of the nature of the Bible, is that God reveals his glory in and through the different events that make up history. God reveals mercy and grace as the one who saves his people from their sins. God reveals his love and his care for his people by rescuing them from danger, by strengthening them to remain faithful all the way to death. God reveals his justice and his might in the victories that he wins over his enemies. And when we think of the way in which the book of Revelation describes what is going on in the world symbolically in the light of the plans and the purposes of God, again and again we see the glory of God as he sustains his people and as he judges his enemies. And we see that point made explicitly in many of the passages in the book of Revelation which which describe the worship of in heaven that responds to what God has done and what God is doing on earth. So think again of the Song of Moses and of the Lamb in Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So God reveals his glory and his deeds in history, and those are the kind of deeds that we read about in the Bible, in a history that includes a great deal of struggle and difficulty for the people of God. Another biblical theme that illumines the question of why God is going to allow Satan to be released and make even greater, more intense war against his people. Another theme that speaks to that is the theme of chastisement or of discipline. 
First Peter 1 speaks of this in the context of, of persecution. Peter acknowledges that his readers have been grieved by various trials. And the reason is, he says, quote, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God tests the genuineness of our faith through suffering and in particular persecution and spiritual warfare. And the result is that is a faith that is more pure, a faith from which some of the dross has been removed. One of God's ways to grow his people is by putting them in situations that test their faith. Will we continue to trust God's love and care even if we are called to give up everything else but God in order to remain faithful to God? The book of Revelation makes it clear that God calls us to be faithful, even if it means literally giving our lives and lesser forms of persecution or temptation test us to see if we're willing to give up money or time or comfort or pleasure for the greater pleasure and satisfaction of living for God. And so when we wonder why in the world God would release Satan from his prison so that he can deceive the nations and, and, and have them make war against his people. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does give us some reasons. God reveals much of his glory in saving his people and winning the victory over sin and Satan and God's way for growing and strengthening the faith of his people and the endurance of his people includes facing temptations and trials including the spiritual warfare that belongs to the Christian life. So we come to the great white throne, verses 11 through 15. This is the throne of the final judgment. And it is this final judgment that gives meaning to life. If there was no judgment at the end of our lives, nothing would ultimately matter. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes grapples with the apparent meaningless of life. And so we read in chapter 1, 2 of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But the answer to that question that is being raised comes at the end of the book, chapter 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter has End of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so now here, right near the end of the Bible, we have a great white throne. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Seen before in our study of the book of Revelation that the color white represents righteousness and justice in God's judgment upon the wicked. When white is worn by the saints, it certainly represents the righteousness of Christ, but 
with a special focus. It also is a symbol of the vindication, of their vindication in the light of the pers- their persecution by the wicked. So here it's clear that the, the whiteness of the throne represents perfectly righteous judgment. The one who is seated on it is so great and so glorious and so majestic that earth and sky fled away. Earth and sky represent the created order. From a human perspective, there is nothing more solid and substantial than the earth and the sky. The generations come, generations go, the earth and the sky remains. But here, they are described as fleeing before the presence of the one seated on the throne of final judgment. The Bible teaches that the end of the world, heaven and earth, will be renewed. But the process of that renewal will include a disintegration of the created order. First Peter, Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed or, in some translations, burned up. All of this emphasizes the greatness of God and the fact that heaven and earth do not have an independent existence. Heaven and earth do not exist on their own. Only God exists on his own, and thus he is the only place of stability that exists, period. <clears throat> this text describes God, that describes God in his throne is intended to fill us with awe before the great glory and majesty of God. The creation itself, the ground that we stand on, will be unraveled. In the day of judgment, the only solid place, the only foundation, the only place that is immovable is God himself. And then John sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, which is the book of life. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to to what they had done. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. A number of books are mentioned in those verses. There's a book of life. And there are these other books that contain the record of everything that every person in the world has ever done. The focus of this text of this paragraph is more on those whose names are not written in the book of life. And there will be a much greater attention given to those who are, who are in the book of life in the chapters to come, the, the following chapters. But in this passage, we have just this reminder that there is a book of life and that those whose names are written in it will not be thrown into the lake of fire. So the dead will be raised and judged according to how they have lived their lives, and only those whose names are written in the book of life will escape the lake of fire, which is the second death. 
but we will all be judged. All the dead will be judged, both unbelievers and believers. It's not so that only unbelievers are judged and, and not believers. Every single person will be judged. But only those whose names are written in the book of life will not be thrown into the lake of fire. Believers will be judged righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, but still their works will be judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes to believers, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So our lives as believers will be evaluated. Our reward in heaven will be influenced by how we have lived our life now in service to Christ. Even though we are saved by the righteousness of Christ and not by our works, how we live as believers matters greatly And the fact that we will be judged makes that very clear. But there is a book of life. And it is mentioned here just to make it clear that on the day of judgment, there will be those not thrown into the lake of fire. And that symbol, and what the symbol of the book of life emphasizes, is God's sovereign choice when it comes to those who are saved. It's significant that what is written in the book of life is not deeds, but names. The other books, they record the deeds, but the book of life records names. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. So this is a a, um, reference to election. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, 4 says that God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The book of the life of life is the book of those who have been chosen to life. Certainly it matters how we, how we live as Christians. Faith and obedience are signs that we have been chosen. But at the end of the day, we are believers because God has chosen us for salvation And that choice is based on God's own decision to include us in the number of the saved. As Paul quotes in Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul continues in verse 16 of Romans 9, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Significant in our text that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is the abode of the dead. It's associated with death. And these are thrown into the lake of fire along with the wicked. And the point here is that Jesus has won the victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In the end, because of Jesus' victory over sin and death and Satan, there's going to be a great and final separation between life and death. The lake of fire will be the place of death. And those who go there will suffer eternal death, which is eternal separation from God 
and eternally enduring his wrath. But on the other hand, in the new creation, there will be no death. There will only be life eternally in loving relationship with God, experiencing his love and living for his glory. This picture of the great white throne stands near the end of the book of Revelation, and it stands as a transition between this age and the age to come. Chapter 21 begins with the new heavens and the new earth. And between now and then is the great white throne. And that puts all of life into perspective. Just as the biblical story ends up at the great white throne from which people are directed either to the lake of fire or the new creation. So human existence ends up before that great white throne. For those who have been trusting in Jesus and living for him, the great white throne is a sign of hope because in Christ we'll be directed to the new heavens and the new earth. For those who are not in Christ, the great white throne leads to the lake of fire. And for those who are on that path, There's still time to repent and turn to the Lord. Certainly one of the reasons for this awful teaching about the second death and the lake of fire is to awaken sinners to their danger so that they might yet turn to the Lord and be saved. And if there's anyone here today who's not faithfully following Christ, there's still time to turn from your sins and to receive the salvation that the Lord offers in the gospel. I urge you, in the light of this passage, to think about the lake of fire, the second death, and turn to Jesus and to receive the gracious salvation that he offers to whoever will come to him and believe and repent. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, there are so many things in your word that that uh, come together, so many great and glorious things, your greatness and glory as it's revealed in this passage. You stand above the heavens and the earth, that you are the one who uh, binds Satan but also releases him and allows him to do what you have ordained for him to do. You... Uh, You are the one who sits on the great right throne and before whom heaven and earth will flee away. Lord, you are so great. These, These verses just give us a little hint of that. And we know there's so much more, and we pray that by your Spirit we may... We may grow into seeing that with a greater and greater depth and clarity. And we pray that you would help us to live in the light of, of these, these truths where you, you are the answer. You are the, the foundation of, of, of safety in Jesus Christ. That even the, the, the very ground on which we walk upon is not secure. It's, it's temporary. But you are eternal. And help us to focus on that, to live our lives in such a way that you are our hope, that you are our great preoccupation, and that we may live with the, in the light of the reality 
that all of these things that are so, feel so solid and that we can hold in our hands, that we can touch and feel, that they're all going to flee away. Grant that we may find our security in the one who is eternal, who has life in himself, being in himself, and who holds everything, especially your people, in his hands. In Jesus' name, amen.